Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jessica Chen Weiss is one of those rare academics who has shown herself again and again to be unafraid of addressing the truly big issues. What drives Chinese nationalism and how does nationalism impact the decisions that China's leadership makes at home and internationally? What really are China's ambitions in the world? And most recently, how can the U.S. craft a wiser and more effective policy toward China? This last question is one that she tackles in a tour de force essay in the latest Foreign Affairs. The essay is titled The China Trap, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition. I cannot recommend it enough to listeners. If you notice that there are a lot of the ideas kind of align with what I've you know, said on this show over the years, that is not a coincidence. It's because Jessica is absolutely one of the people whose perspectives have had a major influence on mine. And I've always found her arguments to be very, very persuasive. Jessica Chen Weiss is a political scientist at Cornell University, and she's been on the show a couple of times already. Jessica, I am so delighted to have you back on Seneca, and congratulations on this essay, which I understand is being widely read and discussed. Thanks so much, Kaiser, for those kind words. It's great to be back. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, Jessica, you've just finished a year working at the State Department in policy planning as a CFR, International Affairs Fellow. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that gig, how you were selected for it, what was involved in your day-to-day? And if you are at liberty to say, you know, some of the, the things, the topics uh, that you worked on while you were there. Well, I was really fortunate to get one of these Council on Foreign Relations Fellowships for tenured international relations scholars, which... You know, allowed me to spend my sabbatical from Cornell at a position in government, and I was I was lucky enough that the folks in policy planning were interested in bringing me on for a year to to really to learn and and to contribute where I could. And the issues that I worked on, you know, really ranged the gamut, but covered a number of the issues that the essay talks to, uh, including U.S. leadership in the multilateral system, uh, tensions over Taiwan, and. Uh, some of the domestic challenges we face in remaining uh, sort of a magnet for uh, international talent uh, and innovation. Fantastic. You clearly, though, you have concerns and critiques about the present direction that the country is taking in its policy toward China, or maybe you wouldn't have written this essay. But there are also things that you believe the administration is doing right. So why don't we start with that? What do you agree with broadly in the administration's approach right now toward the region and specifically toward China? Well, look, I think the Biden administration came into office at a time when the U.S.-China relationship was more or less in a very sharp freefall. And I think the Biden administration really took seriously the effort to put a floor under that relationship while also really working to rebuild uh, U.S. strengths, particularly 
the alliances and partnerships that the Trump administration had disparaged and weakened. I think that the Biden administration has really done well to first, you know, rejoin international organizations, repair those uh, alliance relationships, and and really to try to rebuild uh, our domestic strength and to show again that, you know, democracy can deliver. And and we've seen that with the, you know, the recent CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. So, uh, you know, that has really been, I think, in the first year and a half, the the focus of of the Biden administration is really to um, as was perhaps unfortunately stated in Anchorage, you know, to to rebuild the United States to speak from a position of strength. That certainly has been the emphasis, and, and I think it has delivered. But some of these things, unfortunately, though, also have, you know, a countervailing effect. For example, rebuilding alliance systems gives China the sense that, uh, you know, containment is back, that there's there's this effort to sort of constrain China's rise, to box it in. And even things like that uh, you point to in, in American renewal, when they're couched in terms of competition with China, often China sees those as sort of targeted at at it. So as I said, you have concerns and, and critiques. Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, the theory here has been that by um, shaping the environment around China, uh, you then can change Chinese behavior for the better. That's the essence of, of deterrence. It's the idea that drove, I think, the, the pivot or then the rebalance to Asia under the Obama administration. And, and I think to a point, uh, it has you know, put the United States in a somewhat stronger position. But the, but the challenge is that if not accompanied by kind of an equal effort to continue to integrate China or bring China into an inclusive uh, vision of an international system where China can continue to play a role, it ends up, uh, I think, accelerating the kind of escalatory spiral that we now find ourselves in. Hmm. Possibly a, a somewhat stronger position, um, but also a much more dangerous one is I think the the risk of competition turning toward confrontation being, uh, you know, really pressing at the moment. So Jessica, what would you identify as the core assumptions about China and the region that underpin the Biden administration's current policy toward China? And and by that, I mean assumptions about things like China's intentions, which you've written about, its capabilities, and maybe most of all about what the U.S.'s role in the region really ought to be, ideally. So I think that the you know one of the core driving assumptions here is that this is uh, an enfolding multi-decade struggle for global predominance. Um, mm. I don't necessarily agree that that either ought to be the chief objective of U.S. strategy, nor is it clear to me that the Chinese leadership under Xi Jinping is is hell-bent on becoming the sole superpower. But those, I think, are increasingly in the public conversation, the sort of axioms, uh, sometimes stated, sometimes unstated, mm. that are driving what is, you know, becoming in many ways a zero-sum competition, uh, where each side, even though they claim to want to avoid a Cold War, is still engaged in kind of all-out uh, effort to counter and undermine each other around the world. Yeah, I'm afraid you're you're right. The overall thrust of your argument, though, is is one that we've heard people making more and more. I think uh, in recent years, uh, Ryan Haas, for example, in his book Stronger, uh, which I've talked to him about on the show, and Ali Wine, who was on the show quite recently about his book America's Great Power Opportunity. This argument that we should focus on domestic renewal and restore the power of example, uh, that we shouldn't form policy about China just in reaction to things that China does, that we should, you know, really set our own course, play to our own strengths, um, and try not to out-China China. What this suggests to me, the fact that so many of us are feeling this urgent need to say it, is that we're just 
not doing that right now, uh, that at present we aren't focused nearly enough on renewal, that we are just reacting to China and not setting our own course. Uh, that, I think, is is kind of an assumption in, in your essay. Um, is that your sense of things right now? Is that where we are? So I think that compared to the Trump administration, we have moved much further in the direction of trying to offer an affirmative uh, vision, um, what we want the world to look like. But I would say that despite that emphasis, the balance of effort overall across U.S. foreign policy, including the pressure from Congress and in the public, is really to beat China, is mm. to, to, to outdo them. And the problem with that framing is that it makes it difficult to keep an eye on what our priorities ought to be. You know, where is it, what kinds of initiatives, what uh, actions by Beijing require a kind of like no holds barred opposition? Where um, might we not necessarily like, but still could live with what Beijing is doing? And, and where would we actually want uh, China to play a role and on what terms? So those, I think, conversations don't happen as often in the context of a framing uh, and, and public conversation that is all about beating China. Yeah, and that is really the crux of, of your essay and the, really, the reason that you wrote it. Uh, you argue that the U.S. itself and not China should define what success should mean for America. And, and you write, fleshing out an inclusive, affirmative vision of the world it seeks would be a first step toward clarifying the conditions under which the United States would welcome or accept Chinese initiatives rather than reflexively opposing them. I think that's really well put. Now, this is a big ask, I understand, but what are some examples of just some of these the facets of, of that affirmative vision and what those might be and you know how we should define success and, and the kinds of Chinese initiatives uh, that we might then welcome or accept, as you say, under such a definition as we pursue that vision? So let me start by saying that this isn't just about a vision where we just give things to Beijing. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not mm -hmm. just about conceding that, oh, here's where, you know, what they're doing right now is is just fine. This is really about envisioning a world that, that doesn't quite yet exist or is actually, I think, at risk. And it, it preserves components of the existing order, but I think reaffirms pieces that are under duress. So in particular, I think the avoidance of uh, armed conflict and aggression being a quintessential piece of that mm -hmm. affirmative vision. I think the second would be uh, allowing for political space and will to dedicate ourselves collectively to addressing shared challenges, including pandemics and climate change. And I think a third would be the the freedom to uh, you know pursue the kind of political system that we respectively and individually, um, you know, want to protect and preserve and, and renew. And, and I think that means um, a world that is safe for democracy, but it's also probably going to have to involve a world that is safe for autocracy as well. Um, otherwise, I see this, uh, the ideological dimension of competition escalating in ways that we've seen that are, are really detrimental to uh, the sort of sense of political uh, security um, academic freedom, all these things that we cherish, um, you know, this is, you know, the concept of, of sovereignty and, uh, you know, non-interference is already enshrined in the UN Charter. It just hasn't been discussed in this kind of dimension of, um, you know, freedom from political interference, um, you know, and influence efforts by outside powers. Our influence operations as well as theirs. We would probably wouldn't call them influence operations, but yes, there are many ways in which I think 
despite the fact that the Biden administration has, I think, made an important distinction where we've talked about, and the, you know, Jake Sullivan has said explicitly, you know, we don't seek to change China's system. And, and Secretary Blinken repeated that in his May 26 speech. It's a very important statement of U.S. policy. But there are still a lot of things that we continue to do, I think, that are certainly perceived in Beijing as an effort to change their system and undermine the CCP, including sanctions on CCP officials and uh, things like that. What about uh, in the developing world? One thing that uh, where where I've seen that kind of re- reflexive response to Chinese initiatives that maybe we'd be better off allowing to live and let live, you know, things like, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, or even AAIB, uh, where we have had this kind of, I mean, I think it's sort of a poster child for kind of well, not well thought through reactive responses. Uh, is this the sort of initiative uh, that we should allow space for in in this affirmative vision that you you have in mind? Certainly. I think that the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is one of those, I think, you know, quintessential examples of uh, something that there was a kind of instinctive a desire to marginalize and encourage others, allies and partners to avoid. And, and that ended up obviously not working. Um, and in fact, the AIB has been, I think most would say, you know, much more, uh, the practices have been much more consistent with those of other, uh, you know, development banks and, and norms. Um, and so the the fear, I think, is widely recognized as having been a little bit overblown. You know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is, of course, evolving. And I'm not saying that this is like um, God's gift to the world. But nonetheless, I don't think it's something where there has been, you know, a great, well-thought-through alternative yet that's been resourced adequately to provide an effective competitor. And, um, you know, in the absence of that, it's hard to see that effort to, you know, cast aspersions on it, certainly under the, with the the notion of debt trap uh, diplomacy, etc., as having been particularly effective, and in some cases, having been misplaced. I think far more now agree that the you know, BRI or China's loans in general provide more of a, uh, as much of a creditor trap, a, a challenge for Beijing as for, uh, you know, the country that took out those loans in the first place. And um, that said, I, you know, there are, is reasonable to view with concern some of the problems, you know, emanating from corruption or lack of transparency oversight. And, and I think encouraging those things is, and dedicating resources to supporting local efforts to stand up that kind of civil society scrutiny of these projects, like that is totally legitimate. It just doesn't have to be necessarily framed as an effort to defeat the uh, the VRI. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that there are components of that being un- undertaken uh, today, but I think that every time one of these new initiatives comes up, there's a sort of instinctive, I think, desire to, to block it rather than to think about, okay, how, what, what, in what ways can we best shape it so that it, you know, really delivers for the, for the common good. Jessica, you've warned about trying to out-China China, and you've talked a, a, about the kind of mirroring that, that often happens uh, in this kind of zero-sum competition. Can you talk about some of the pernicious things that have happened domestically in America as a result of, of our uh, so-called you know, great power competition with China, things that concern you? So this is, I think, uh, one of the areas where I am just really concerned that we're continuing to head in a, in a bad direction. There are, of course, I think, reasonable concerns about Chinese espionage and uh, IP theft, but the protective efforts, the efforts to, to screen for these kinds of threats to research security and, and such, I think have had 
along with uh, the rise in, in anti-Asian hate um, that I think really spiked the beginning of the pandemic and the and have continued on, in part, you know, fed by the kind of political rhetoric that the previous administration uh, engaged in during the pandemic and politicians continue to, um, particularly, I think, during, you know, campaign season, this kind of stuff can get pretty ugly. That combination of, of policy and rhetoric um, despite the administration's efforts to, you know, say that there's no place for, uh, you know, xenophobia, and, you know, we're really lucky to have, uh, you know, students and scholars come to the United States from everywhere, and including from China. Despite that, I think we're in a really, I think, bad place. The Some of the surveys that I have cited in the uh, essay suggest that majority of early career scientists of Chinese origin and, and even a plurality of early career scientists from anywhere around the world who are here in the United States feel that the United States is no longer a welcoming uh, place and that many of them have considered uh, moving abroad. So that is, I think, directly to the detriment uh, of our what has once been our comparative advantage uh, as being a magnet for international talent and innovation and I'm concerned that it, this extends, you know, even beyond the question of, of science and innovation. It also has to do with the quality of our democracy and the kind of dynamism uh, that, you know, has really made us the kind of once attractive uh, model that we were. I, I fear that that, along with so many other things in the political realm, has, uh, you know, really been dimmed of late. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's encouraging, of course, that the the China initiative has been at least rebranded, if not uh, shut down. But yeah, there's still a lot of this. And I think recognizing that, as you say, the political rhetoric and broader, you know, xenophobia has been a driver of anti-AAPI hate is not carrying water for the CCP. It's not just repeating one of their talking points. Um, in fact, I, I think that uh, if you insist that that is so, you are, in fact, illustrating the kind of zero-sum mentality. If you're so, you know, worked up about letting the CCP score a point by suggesting that xenophobia has anything to do with anti-AAPI hate, then, you know, you're just kind of proving the point that, that the zero-sum condition is, is, is bad. You know, you, you've warned us against this mirroring and, and out-Chinaing out China, but aren't some aspects of the Chinese approach maybe worthy of emulation here or things that, you know, even if we aren't inclined to ex adopt them naturally are, are maybe necessary for us to take up if we do want to compete effectively? I'm thinking about, you know, certain aspects of industrial policy. Uh, you, you just cited the CHIPS Act approvingly. Do you think that there, there are things that we ought to be actively trying to learn from the Chinese approach? You know, here I'd say that clearly the, the ship has sailed on moving toward uh, some kind of 21st century in industrial policy. Um, and that said, I think that those who, uh, you know, really specialize in these areas recognize that what we're doing doesn't really look anything like what, what China is doing. And, right. and I think that those who are really, uh, you know, deeply versed in this area point out that just building fabs in the United States isn't going to even remotely uh, address the problem. It, it remains critically an issue of, of human talent uh, and uh, innovation. And so even as we attempt to, you know, of course, we, we should be building, uh, you know, our domestic, building out our domestic infrastructure and, and 
doing the way doing the things that China is doing well. I'm not sure we'll ever get to high speed rail, but <laughs> nonetheless, I think that uh, just because China is doing something doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. I just th- think that when we use the phrase like "let's not out China," China, we need to be very clear what have been and what will continue to be the sources of our comparative or asymmetric advantage, and not uh, f- feel that just because China is doing this well that that is necessarily the grounds on which we should also compete. Yeah, um, and by keeping that in mind, you know, who we are and who we want to be, that we are then able to kind of discipline the sort of lines of competition so that those, uh, you know, the means um, remain constructive uh, rather than uh, potentially destructive to that vision. So Jessica, your essay is really refreshing in its candid call for actual diplomacy and not, as you say, you know, just crisis communication and risk reduction, but really the hard stuff about plausible terms of coexistence in the future of the international system, as you put it. Uh, can we get to a point, though, right now in our politics where we are ready to do this without some massive crisis for us sort of um, catalyzing it? You know, a lot of people will say that this is, you know, too pie in the sky. But I think that the alternative, which is a continuing spiral toward confrontation and conflict, I think would be far more disastrous. And I, I think that, you know, both the United States and China face incredibly uh, challenging domestic problems. And that both governments really, I think, should see an interest in stabilizing the relationship this isn't going to settle for all time how the United States and China are going to get along. But I think lowering the temperature would p- provide a bit of breathing room that would be certainly in our uh, best interest. And so one of the suggestions that I make is to see this as a, a process of making reciprocal steps to lower the temperature. This is not about making unilateral concessions, but but bringing, uh, you know, putting on the table for discussion through whatever means um, you know, various issues that, you know, we feel very strongly about in terms of needing to change in China's behavior, but not just identifying what China needs to do, but what we are also willing to contemplate to doing in a reciprocal fashion to begin to take baby steps back, I think, uh, from the brink. I don't know if you've read Lyle Goldstein's book from a few years ago called Meeting China Halfway, but he actually talks about and, and lays out, I think it's 10 different issue areas and actually, you know, puts down on paper uh, the kind of reciprocal steps, the escalating spiral of trust or something. I think that he calls it something like uh, uh, escalating trust spirals where, you know, we do this and then the expectation is Beijing does that. And then after that, we do this and that. And so it's actually very much worth reading. I I would check it out. We uh, interviewed him many, many years ago. I think it was probably 2016 about that book, it's it's re- worth revisiting because what you've just said really kind of echoes, I don't know, not in the specifics necessarily, but this general approach of uh, expectation of reciprocity when concessions are, are made. But, you know, what we're talking about in, in the end is really the challenges of imagining terms of coexistence with an authoritarian power or a superpower. I, I know that even to suggest such things right now, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, it exposes you to, you know, charges of capitulationism or appeasement. You've said that this isn't about giving, just giving stuff away. There's an, an expectation of reciprocity. Um, Let me also say 
If I can. Oh, yeah. It's really important for me to make clear that this is not just about reassurances, but this is also about threats, right? That this is the essence of, of deterrence, really, is the ability to make the punishments that China can expect conditional on their behavior. And if they don't act in whatever provocative ways, then they can expect a different outcome. And I think that right now, when you have this sort of unilateral, they do this, then we do that, and then you have this sort of tit-for-tat escalatory spiral, is that there's no nothing made explicit that the punishments or the you know that China can expect are in that way conditional. Um, and so this is not just about like, if they behave better, then we'll behave better. This is also, if they behave badly, we'll hit them in this way, and we'll match and counter. The challenge is really is, I think, for U.S. policy is avoiding unconditional punishments or unconditional uh, assurances, because then that doesn't give the other side any incentive to moderate. But I feel like right now we're in the situation where we are hypersensitive to any bad behavior by Beijing, and we tend to sort of blow it a little bit out of proportion. This is something that I that comes up again and again in conversations I have with you know people who I, I know and I trust in China over the last few years. Um, they they really what they would diagnose as the, the heart of the problem is kind of this psychological discomfiture. And I, I have to say, you know, I, I believe in it too. And I'm not surprised that it should happen, you know, because we are in a situation where, you know, there is a pervasive sense of at least relative decline. There is a, 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 an anxiety we're experiencing at seeing China rise. And as it does, you know, it's doing so just by violating all these these things that we believe were axiomatic truths about, uh, about you know, how states develop and, and uh, how... Uh, economies grow. You know, we're not. You weren't supposed to be able to to innovate if you're in an authoritarian system. You're not supposed to be able to, you know, even have a flourishing market economy if you're uh, not a full fledged democracy. Um, but you know, obviously, China too has has uh, not handled so gracefully its own decline from its you know historical apogee in, in the in the 19th century. It's not like China handled it with total grace and equanimity. We you know when it lost power. But I I, I really feel like we are, I mean, I think there's something to this, that because we have this underlying kind of anxiety about China's rise, it's made us magnify China's behavior. Now, it hasn't helped things, obviously, that some of that behavior is truly egregious, like just independently of that, you know, that whole underlying kind of psychological discomfiture aside, we would find Xinjiang to be, maybe some people would include Hong Kong as something where our response has, hasn't has been out of proportion. This makes it just really hard for those of us who are kind of urging a less hardline approach to China to gain any traction. It makes it even harder for us to reckon uh, with the emotional or psychological uh, components of this and harder for us to right-size China's actual challenges. And I, I bring this up in the context of, you know, we, we sure, we, we should have those, as you, you described, threats as well, and they should be credible. But I'm worried that right now we're in a, in a mind where we take everything that China does as a threat and we tend to blow it way out of proportion. Is this something that you wrestle with at all? So, Kaiser, I, I think it's first important to, to recognize that a lot of Beijing's behavior is threatening. It is also repugnant on you know, human rights grounds and such uh, from the perspective of you know, democratic values. But it's threatening for a purpose 
And it's threatening because Beijing has concluded that to act otherwise is to be bullied and to be pushed around. Mm -hmm. And so I want to draw a distinction between what is a threat and the causes of that threat. And I think that there's this question about if you look at you know Beijing's behavior and the, whether it's you know harassing foreign you know military aircraft or aligning with uh, Putin on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine and then afterwards amplifying Russian disinformation, um, you know trying to reshape international norms, all of those things are a challenge. I don't want to say that that threat has been blown out of proportion. Although, of course, certainly sometimes it has been and certainly was, I think, under the previous administration. But I think the question is, so why and what can we do about it? And can it be changed? Right. Yeah. And so I think the the direct the line that's drawn between Chinese behavior and China's intentions, that's where we, I think, get into a lot more of the kind of overconfident assumptions about what China ultimately wants and whether or not that is in any way susceptible to being shaped by the balance again, as I've said, of like of deterrence as well, which involves both kind of credible threats, but also uh, credible assurances. Yeah, I think you do a really, really great job in exploring sort of the reasons why some of these behaviors that we perceive as threatening are actually, um, well, they still are threatening. I mean, it can be true at the same time, but they are in response to perceived threats or, or, or challenges by the United States as well. I think that's that's one of the, the real strengths of this essay. You do a very good job in exploring that whole story. Um, you put this so succinctly, and you capture what I've long believed to be this dynamic that's that's led us to where we are right now in a passage that I think it's worth quoting at some length. You wrote, American policymakers knew well that their Chinese counterparts were committed to defending CCP rule, but Washington calculated that the world would be less dangerous with China inside rather than outside the system. That is a great encapsulation, I think, of the logic of engagement from from Kissinger on down really through the Obama administration. Uh, Then you go on, you you write, that bet largely succeeded and is still better than the alternative. Yet many in Washington always hoped for and to varying degrees sought to promote China's liberal evolution as well. Here again, Jessica, I totally agree. It did succeed in great measure. It's far better than the alternative and I don't even fault any Americans who, you know, who did cherish this kind of hope for liberal evolution in China. I, I would totally own up to it myself. I, I confess I want it. I, I suspect you had those hopes, too. And, and why wouldn't we? I mean, you know, who doesn't want a more open and tolerant and, and deliberative and participatory China, right? But here's the kicker. I think this gets it just right, is that you, you wrote, China's growing authoritarianism has thus fed the narrative of a comprehensive U.S. policy failure And the focus on correcting that failure has entrenched Beijing's insecurity and belief that the United States and its allies will not accept China as a superpower. That is like that. That's so well put. That's that's the essence of the dynamic in the relationship right now. Um, This leads me to wonder, did we fight hard enough? I mean, and by we, I mean, like people like you and me, did we fight hard enough in defense of engagement, of big E engagement? And and why did so many who ought to have known better just accept the kind of simplistic argument, you know, that China's authoritarian turn meant simply that engagement was a failure? Well, Kaiser, I think a number of people, I didn't, but a number of people did push back. And I think, um, I think very reasonably char- characterized the objectives of 
you know, those decades of engagement as being fundamentally driven by this strategic imperative uh, and interest in first, uh, you know, grappling with the Soviet Union. Right. Um, and then recognizing that to have a, a power, a rising power of China's size and influence outside of the system would be a recipe for, uh, you know, just a catastrophic conflict mm -hmm. uh, and a effort earlier on to not just reshape norms inside of that system, but also contribute to that system through peacekeeping and other kinds of major contributions that China's made, but really to try to overturn the whole system. And so the, the counterfactual, I think, is really would have been much worse. And that's, I think, was the essence of, of the argument. Yeah. I think that there was a, a sense that a recalibration was overdue. Unfortunately, I think that the, the recalibration under the Trump administration went so far in the other direction from engagement to confrontation that we lost a lot of the kind of the muscle memory of what it means to just do diplomacy, which is like the small e engagement that I think the Biden administration is really committed to to reopening and, and pursuing in a diplomatic fashion, but without the expectation of liberalizing China. So, but diplomacy under the Biden administration still hasn't resembled what it was back when there was the SNDD, uh, when when there was engagement, uh, diplomatic engagement at all levels. Right now, it's only happening at the very top. It's you know, there's basically. You know, Yang Jiechi meeting with Jake Sullivan or Wang Yi, you know, meeting with Secretary Blinken. And, you know, occasionally a, a phone call between Xi and Biden. That's that's not the same kind of diplomacy that we had. I, there's a really great interview with Susan Thornton I recommend everyone read in The Wire uh, this week. Um, and, you know, she's she's talked about the dearth of, of sort of multi-level diplomatic engagement as well. So while, yeah, we should certainly be glad to see that it's better than it was during the Trump administration, that's a pretty low goddamn bar. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Jessica, you, toward the end of your essay, talk about the work of Andrew Chubb, uh, who was on our show some years ago, to talk specifically about you know the very research that you referenced. And for those of our listeners who might not remember that show, what, what um, Andrew argues basically is is something about the relationship between the domestic challenges uh, that the Chinese leadership faces and assertiveness when it comes to international issues. And it, it really kind of goes against uh, what has become kind of a conventional wisdom about the relationship between those two things. Jessica, you are kind of one of our leading experts on Chinese nationalism and its impact on policy as well. Um, and you cite Andrew Chubb and Taylor Fravel's work on the, in this area approvingly. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what the the reality is? How nationalism? Because you know, in the wake of Pelosi's visit, this is a, a very live issue. If anyone who pays any attention to uh, China's social media space, especially, and and what should U.S. policymakers take away from this? I think the punchline really is that historically, the research has shown that domestic unrest and and challenges that China faces inside don't translate into increased aggression or use of force abroad. Hmm. In fact, it's the opposite. The domestic challenges have let, have tended to uh, encourage Chinese leaders to be a bit more moderate abroad as they have, you know, grappled with their uh, problems at home. So you know, Taylor Fravel's work bears this out. Phil Saunders has a, uh, and Erica Downs have a piece on this. And then Andrew Chubb's uh, re research more recently on the East and South China Seas. And I think that this is really important because I think that there's uh, too often a tendency to 
draw a straight line between uh, either current or projected challenges that China faces at home and uh, a willingness to act more aggressively. So there are two challenges, I think, with the argument about domestic challenges in China. Uh, One argument says that domestic challenges lead to more aggressive behavior abroad, which we haven't seen in the research. And the other is that domestic challenges in China uh, create incentives for uh, greater, create incentives for stability, which I think is, is true to a point. But the problem is when that argument gets interpreted as uh, a window of opportunity for outside powers, United States or others, to take more uh, confrontational actions that would be relatively safe to pursue in a particular period because the because Beijing is unlikely to react uh, as strongly. And I think that that idea uh, was one that was percolating uh, in the in the public conversation a bit um, leading up to the 20th Party Congress, but I think has really had to be revised first, you know, following uh, Xi's support for Putin before and after uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then, of course, uh, in the wake of the recent um, visit by Speaker Pelosi to Taiwan, we saw China take um, unprecedentedly threatening actions in terms of military exercises and missile tests around Taiwan. But I think, interestingly, you know, threading that needle, taking uh, actions to show resolve, advance China's interests, but uh, in a way that reduced or mitigated the risk of a kinetic conflict. This is going to be a year where uh, both sides on that argument are going to be you know, looking at this uh, d- data point because inarguably we have a situation where she does have what Andrew would have maybe called a legitimacy uh, deficit where it's certainly facing a lot of domestic challenges right now. You know, We have a potentially collapsing real estate market right now, which is such a, a major load-bearing wall in the Chinese economy and the way that local governments fund themselves. We're seeing all the fallout from the, the persistent COVID zero policy uh, where, you know, the Chinese economy has grown, grew slower in the second quarter than at any time in, in, in recent memory. I mean, even since the, the you know, it's any time since 2009 anyway. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a year of challenges. And of course the 20th party Congress, which is now set for mid, mid October. And, uh, we will uh, be talking to you about this and see how you think this all shakes out, whether this leads to more belligerent posturing and, and even action in the East or South China Seas or on the border with India, or whether uh, she kind of curbs adventurism in, in, in the interest of, of you know, focusing on domestic policy. So, yeah, that should be really, really fascinating to watch. Yeah, I'll just say I think that the you know the short version is that we don't know, and I think that we would be foolish to uh, take either as a prescription for action, mm-hmm. because she may emerge you know more emboldened, but um, he also will face less immediate pressure to deliver, and so that could create I think more opportunity for this kind of more creative steps could lo- could move away from the dynamic zero COVID policy. A lot of things could could change or loosen up as well. And so I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he will decide to act more aggressively in, for example, against Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Jessica Chen Weiss, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, It's always such a pleasure to have you on. 
Thanks so much, Kaiser. Always a pleasure. Again, the, the essay is titled The China Trap, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition. It's in the latest edition of Foreign Affairs. Uh, it's such refreshing good sense, and I would die happy if even half of the recommendations were heeded by this and coming U.S. administrations. Well, on to recommendations, but first a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by The China Project. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the network, well, the way to support that work is by becoming an Access subscriber. That gets you all the good stuff behind the paywall and, of course, the daily Access newsletter, which is really worth the price of admission. So help us keep the lights on uh, so I can continue to interview thoughtful people like Jessica and bring you all the important network shows. Uh, okay, recommendations. Jessica, what do you have for us? So I have two recommendations. First, you asked me a lot about what the affirmative or inclusive vision of a future order might look like. There is a, also in the same uh, issue of foreign affairs, I think a really excellent piece by Danny Roderick and Steve Walt talking about what that could look like and what are the principles by which you might uh, arrive at uh, a future order that we could agree to that would serve our interests, but also make room for those of uh, others. So I recommend that piece uh, for more on this theme. And the other recommendation I would have uh, is for a new volume called After Engagement, Dilemmas in U.S.-China Security Relations, uh, edited by Jacques Delisle and Avery Goldstein. Mm. Um, full disclosure, I contributed a chapter on ideological competition in U.S.-China relations. But the the volume is really, I think, an, an outstanding uh, survey of various issues in U.S.-China relations across many different domains, from the security uh, competition to ideology to the South China Sea to looking at you know Japan and the Korean Peninsula, Taiwan, uh, and the tech competition. Wow, that's the whole 360. Uh, who are some of the contributors? So we have uh, Adam Siegel and Elsa Kania, Phil Saunders, Scott Kastner, Victor Cha, Michael Green, Taylor Fravel, Ian Johnston, Charlie Glazer, and, and Avery Goldstein and Jacques Delisle. Wow. All right. Great recommendations, both. I haven't read the Roderick and Walt piece yet, but I'm going to uh, get on that right away. Um, I have that thing mailed to me, and often I, I read it in hardcover, and it hasn't come out yet, so I'll, I'll... I think that's right. I think I've gotten the hard copy, and I read it uh, a couple nights ago, um, but I don't think it's been released online yet, So, but it should be in the next day or two. Okay. Yeah, so you mean I'll, I'll be getting it in the mail like in the next day or two? I think so. Oh, yeah. Good, good, good. Okay, so I want to recommend the new audiobook versions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, read by the amazingly talented Andy Serkis, who, of course, played Gollum, um, you know, Smeagol, in, um, in the Peter Jackson films. Uh, not everybody is going to love the fact that the voices are really very much based on the, the Peter Jackson you know, film trilogy, uh, so you've got you know, Andy Serkis kind of doing Legolas kind of in, in the voice of, of Orlando Bloom and definitely doing Gimli in the voice of John Reese davies who, who has like solidified, I think, in the minds of everybody that, that dwarves are supposed to have kind of Scottish accents, which is a weird thing. Anyway, I, I listened to about half of the two towers while driving uh, from Chapel Hill to Madison with my Tolkien nerd daughter. Um, one thing I would warn people about, if you happen to be uh, crossing the farmlands of Indiana after a, a pretty big lunch, try not to listen to the tree beard, you know, Fanghorn Forest sections because he 
he does the, you know, he does Treebeard who speaks very slowly, never taking too much haste. And it was very hard to, I mean, that's kind of soporific, but uh, it's great. Otherwise, it's it's just fantastic. Um, I will probably get the others. I haven't listened to his versions of The Fellowship or The Return of the King, and I haven't even finished the uh, Two Towers one, but it was great. Uh, we just we just got it for the road trip, and it, it really served us in, in good stead. Um, so check it out. Andy Sirkis is just a delight. Anyway, uh, Jessica, thanks once again. It's such a great essay. Definitely check it out, folks, and uh, let me know what you think. Thanks so much, Kaiser. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at our new handle is at the China Proj. So be sure to, uh, to to follow us there and check out all the shows the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.